Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, February 19th, 2023. On the show today, news, listener questions, and a new universal survey about park reservations. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us about all the times Disney's tried to use Walt's likeness in the parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who reminds you Doc Martin was the one who made the shoes so you're really wearing Doc Martin's monsters. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I'm doing well, Len. And of course, Mr. Testa is riffing on, we refer to the, the big guy with the bolts in his neck as Frankenstein. When, and as Len points out, the character is actually Frankenstein's monster because possession is <laughs> nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> on the other hand, if we're ta actually talking about possession, that's an entirely different horror film. That's The Exorcist, <laughs> which, by the way, celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, Len. Does it really? It was released to theaters the day after Christmas in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> it's the feel-good movie of the <laughs> holiday season. <laughs> yeah, get on that. Not to mention setting back the sale of, of pea soup for a decade, but I oh, love that God. thinking, you know. What's our big picture for Christmas? <laughs> one, I got one word for you. Satan. <laughs> there we go. Which is almost Santa. You know, you it's move Santa the letters close, around. Close enough. I told you about, we talked about it on the on a show earlier about how the thing to do for members of the clergy when they're in D.C. is to take pictures of themselves at the bottom of the stairs. Oh. It, <laughs> Oh, that's just, it's oh, just God. Okay. that's a certain that's a certain kind of humor, isn't it? There, there we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Sue Moore, Ava D, Michael Stuver, and Katie Sawyer. And longtime subscribers Bruce Barton, Dwayne Solly, and Leah Mathis. Jim, these are the characters in flight cast members who'd like to apologize profusely for their recent unauthorized balloon joyrides across the country. So to Canada, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, and the 673rd Air Base Wing in particular for that thing in the Yukon last week, and to the staff at Bendito's Cantina in Myrtle Beach for yelling, Pluto's really a Martian from the balloon during two-for-one margarita night, which was especially wrong. That was inappropriate, and they're very sorry. True story. You know, I, now that I think about it, isn't the base of the characters in Flight Balloon octagon shape? Is it, and is shiny, Jim, and shiny. We report the facts, Jim. You guys can decide. I just, I, again, I learned so much in this part of the show. <laughs> I was walking by characters in flight the other day. I'm like, what would it take for the Air Force to shoot this down? Like, what? Like, everyone's kind of on edge right now. When you bring this thing up, are you like... We're Americans. We're all happy Americans. Everybody here is an earthling. This is great. Look at us. All earth-based carbon life forms just floating around in my tethered balloon. They talked about the guys in the F-18s who were sent out to, you know, first they have to do the flyby and they talk about, yeah. well, what did you see? Well, you know, I was going by at 200 miles an hour. And yeah. just a blur. Oh, blur. It's a blur again. Yeah. <laughs> so... And you know that some of these were probably actual weather balloons from like, oh. you know, the University of Washington. And there's some kid like monitoring the signal going, yep, it's beeping. Yep, it's beeping. And then that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, speaking speaking of the news, Jim, (laughs) let's do the news. Folks, Mm -hmm. the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted Mm -hmm. travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, a couple of news items this week. First, Disney has announced annual passholder previews for Tron, and the Mm -hmm. setup is going on actually right now as we're recording this, Jim. And most of you who are currently uh, on hold on the Disney website should be out by the time the show comes out on Monday. Mm. <laughs> I have a friend's gym who've been on hold since 9 a.m. with a prompt mm-hmm. that says, your wait is over an hour. And mm-hmm. Jim, let me just say that any mm-hmm. time estimate that includes the range of 61 minutes to the eventual heat death of the universe <laughs> is probably not a great user experience. But good luck to all of you who are on hold. <laughs> Okay. All right, uh, Jim, the other big news, and we didn't report on this last week, so let's do it now, Mm -hmm. is that the uh, Florida legislature has passed a bill reforming the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The Mm -hmm. new name is now the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District. The big Mm -hmm. uh, difference in the bill is that the governor gets to appoint the board of directors instead of it being uh, Disney land holders right now. Mm -hmm. Also, a couple of interesting things uh, on the bill. Persons who've worked in the theme park industry in the past three years are ineligible for the board. Also, have you have you read the bill, Jim? It's 191 pages. I, I, actually, having a physical copy mailed to me, but please go on. So it's uh, the border of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, now the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, is mm-hmm. changed, presumably to include new residents who the governor wants on the board. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because to describe the land that's now in and out of the district took 79 of the bills, 191 pages. And to put that in perspective, the entire original Reedy Creek Improvement District bill was just 92 pages. Hmm. And anytime you see something like this, Jim, anytime you see like super, super, super specific things in the bill, especially one that's basically half of the bill's size, you're like, why? Why is this level of detail in this bill? And I suspect, Jim, but I haven't been able to figure it out yet, but I think that some of the borders in the new bill might be down to the level of individual homes that are either in or out of the district, depending on political affiliation. We'll see if I can find more about okay. that. And so I've, what I've tried to do is sort of cut and paste the descriptions of the um, the land mm-hmm. areas into Google to see mm-hmm. if I can get uh, like a plat or a survey. of it. I haven't been able, been successful yet, but it's, it's going to take a little bit more deep diving around there. But yeah, I suspect it's like at the end of, at the uh, the level of individual homes in or out of the, uh, the district. So the, uh, the big question, Jim, is why was there no opposition from, uh, from Disney on this? Well, I, I have some info to share, but please, you first. <laughs> so I'm like 99.99% sure that there was a ton of private room in a restaurant talking about this between Disney and the legislature. And I don't know exactly where or who was in these conversations. Mm-hmm. But Jim, the next time you're in Tallahassee, if you're in the mood for Italian, you'll do so. <laughs> There's a wonderful 16-ounce bone in Ville Parm that is just amazing. Totally recommend it. Also, they have a private room in case you need private conversations. I'm just saying. So my thoughts on this, right, Mm -hmm. were from Disney's perspective, it's very hard to fight both the governor and the legislature. Mm -hmm. Because even if you think you're right, any law that gets in the way of what the governor wants will just be changed by the legislature, right? Mm -hmm. And then any court fights that go out of the state would basically be lengthy and unpredictable in their outcome. Any lawyer will tell you that, right? We've talked on previous shows that Disney's already losing some of the over 50 demographic, which have a lot of disposable income because of this whole controversy. And so I think Disney's question is, is do we want to be in the news over this for the next X number of years? Even if we win, would it just be a Pyrrhic victory? 
right? Mm -hmm. And so that's that was sort of like the calculus that uh, I think everyone who's looking at this is saying. Like even if you know, even if Disney thinks they're right, a protracted court battle is not in the shareholders' best interest. No, no. And Disney has been in the news and tied to Ron DeSantis for the better part of a year now. And yeah. as you pointed out, it's having a negative effect on a certain segment of, of would-be visitors to the park over the yeah. age of 50. And it just, we have to stop this negative publicity. But the other contributing factor was at the same time that this bill is chugging along and about to be mm -hmm. voted on, you have the Nelson Peltz situation. Uh, he's making a run at the board. And right. The way it was explained to me is that Bob Iger saw himself as fighting fires in two directions. And yeah. it was like one of these things where it's like, look, Ron DeSantis, what he's doing will affect the company's operation in Florida. Whereas Nelson Pels, if he gets somebody on the board, that potentially affects the entire company on a worldwide basis. Right. So it's like you had to pick your battles. And it was just to the effect of, I need to put out that fire. And you made your visit to the Reedy Creek Improvement District where they voted on one major park to be put in development and two minor parks. I mean, and remember the, the very thing when you had your conversation with the folks at Reedy Creek, they mentioned, yeah. we don't know what the makeup of this board will be in a few months. I mean, they literally knew this it, was coming down the pipe. Yeah, they didn't actually say it, Jim, but, the, but let me put it this way. If there was one business I could own right now in the United States, it yep. would be the concession that sells stamps with the word approved mm -hmm. to the Reedy Creek Improvement District right now. Because you know that mm -hmm. everything that Disney wants is now getting stamped like approved, 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 yep. approved, approved. Yep. Disney made a hard decision, but again, set this up in such a way that it will have the least lasting impact on the company. And from conversations I've had with folks at Disney, A, we want to be out of the spotlight and we will hope that at some point in the future, Ron DeSantis will not be either the governor of Florida or the president of the United States. Right. Because Ron's gotten a lot of publicity out of bashing the Disney company. So it's just sort yeah. of keep your head we, down. We don't want to do this for the next two to four years. Yeah. No, that's it exactly. So here's one upside. Mm -hmm. to this whole thing that I don't think Jim has been discussed nearly enough. And it's this. One of the reasons why we don't have residential developments inside of Walt Disney World property is because mm -hmm. those landowners would be uh, able to vote on mm -hmm. board of directors for the Reedy Creek Improvement District. But now, Jim, the governor appoints mm -hmm. the board members to the, to the new district, which means that Disney wouldn't need to be concerned about potential landowners inside Walt Disney World than voting on the makeup of the board members, which means they could conceivably sell residential real estate inside of the 28,000 acres that they have. Hmm. And I, I, let me just say, I didn't think of it myself, but uh, someone uh, Disney adjacent uh, hmm. sent me an email like, hey, have you thought of this? Let's see how this plays out. But again, Disney basically made the least painful decision. And, and again, yes. Somet sometimes the best outcome is the least bad outcome, right? There we go. That's it. <laughs> yeah. so. All right. All right, Jim. We, uh, we have some surveys uh, in the news. A friend mm -hmm. of the show who will remain nameless mm -hmm. has shared a brand new universal survey that asks for your opinion on park reservation systems. So the initial couple of questions are, uh, when was your most recent trip to Universal? 
Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's another question around uh, reminding you of Disney's reservation system that says, before the survey, were you aware mm-hmm. of Disney's park reservation system? The next question after that is, uh, when did you first become aware of the Disney park reservation system? And it was before I went on the Disney website to purchase a ticket or when I went on the Disney website to purchase a ticket. And I think, Jim, this question is to figure out the impact of the surprise factor <laughs> that, uh, okay. the, for people who didn't know about it beforehand. Like mm-hmm. they will take this answer in the context of every other answer that you're mm-hmm. about to get, right? So a couple of other questions. Did you use the park reservation system? And then was it you or was it someone else in your party who was primarily responsible for making the park reservation? And Jim, my my note on this one is they want to make sure they're talking to the victim. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, you are correct. All right. The uh, the next question is, is when planning your most recent Disney visit, and remember, this is a universal survey. When planning your most recent Disney visit, how far in advance did you reserve your park reservations? Day of the visit, uh, less than a week in advance, one to two weeks in advance, three weeks to a month in advance, two to three months in advance, four to six months, seven to 11 or a year or more out. And next question is, did you make all of your park reservations at the same time? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a similar question, did you make your park reservations on the same day you bought your tickets or on a different day? All right. So the, uh, the next one is a great question. And it's, which of the following better describes how you chose when to book your park reservations for your most recent visit to Disney? I chose a date to visit Disney and booked park reservations based on that. In mm-hmm. other words, I picked the day and then made mm-hmm. reservations. Or I looked at park reservation availability and chose a date to visit Disney based on that. Because this question, Jim, tells Universal how many people are willing to work around park reservations and still go to the parks. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, another great question right after that. Comparing your most recent Disney visit to visits prior to the implementation of the reservation system, did the reservation system change how early you started planning? So the first option is, yes, I started planning sooner than I would have pre-reservation system. Yes, I started planning later than I would have pre-reservation system. No, I started planning about the same time. Mm-hmm. And did the reservation system change how many days you spent at Disney on your most recent visit? Yes, I spent more days. Yes, I spent less days. No, I spent the same number of days. So the first question there is, did the park reservation system make you commit earlier? In which case, we Universal would know earlier that you're coming. Mm-hmm. And if you did, did you spend more or less than you would have? So two great mm-hmm. questions there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. yeah. All right, so the uh, so the next next question, and there's a section here where it's just like one great question after another, mm-hmm. but this one is uh, the next one. Now, please think back to when you were first planning your most recent Disney visit before you made any purchases or reservations. Did you experience any of the following situations? Please select all that apply. And the first one is no parks were available on the day I wanted to go. The second option is my first choice park was not available on the day I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Third option was my first choice park was not available at all during my visit. Remember, Jim, this happened to me during Hannah's last birthday in Walt Disney World where she could not get into the Magic Kingdom for four consecutive days. And then the fourth option was uh, all the parks I wanted to visit were available. And I think if you answered all the parks that were uh, – all the parks were available, then you could combine that with the how far in advance did you plan to see whether the hoops that Disney makes guests go through Mm -hmm. were necessary and then how guests – 
felt about it. Because if you didn't plan very far in advance mm-hmm. and all the parks were available, then what was the point of the reservation system? Right? True. Very true. Okay. Yeah. So then the, uh, the next question is, do any of the following statements describe your experience with park reservations while you're planning this most recent Disney visit? Please select all that apply. I made a change to one or more of my park reservations. I delayed booking one or more park reservations in the hopes there'd be more availability closer to my visit. Mm-hmm. And we know that that happens, right? We know that Disney changes. I booked yeah. a reservation at one. <laughs> There's a, this is a question. Mm-hmm. If I could, if I could get a nickel for every time this next option was clicked, mm-hmm. we would be rich. I booked a reservation at one Disney park so that I could park up to another park that had no availability. <laughs> 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 I know of what you speak. Yes, okay. I canceled one or more of my park reservations. I had a technical issue while making a park reservations or none of the above. And again, so there's a jump through a hoop aspect to some of those questions, right? especially the thing around park hopping. Right? Mm-hmm. Here's the, uh, the next one. Did you visit another Orlando area theme park, such as Universal or SeaWorld, during your visit, specifically due to park reservation availability at Disney? Please select all that apply. Yes, I visited another theme park because I couldn't get a reservation Hmm. on a specific day. Yes, I visited another theme park because I couldn't get a reservation for a specific park or no. And the the funny thing is, is as I was processing these questions, getting getting ready for the show, and I was talking to two friends of mine on text uh, who have both told me in the past that they specifically go to Universal because it doesn't have a park reservation system. And one of these friends was also teasing me because he got a really excellent room at Animal Kingdom Lodge. Mm-hmm. And was sending me sending me pictures of basically the fireplace late at night. I'm like, I, I hate I hate you, and I want to be you at the same time. I can't believe it. Anyway, all right. Here's the uh, the next question. Next, we have a few questions more generally about your Disney visits. Now that there's a reservation system, and mm-hmm. let me just say to the people who are inside Universal's survey team, you are doing God's work here. You are doing. <laughs> You're serving the Lord's mission by asking these questions. Okay. And I, for one, just applaud it. All right. On any Disney visit, have you ever gone to the front gate of a Disney park and been turned away for not having a reservation? Yes or no? That's what I said. Okay. All right. And we have some additional questions. Disney's park reservation system requires guests to reserve which park they'd like to visit on a certain day in addition to purchasing a park ticket. Park reservations are subject to availability. Guests with park hopper tickets only need to make a reservation for the first park they visit in a day and can visit any others after 2 p.m. What are your overall feelings about Disney's park reservation system? (laughs) Completely positive, somewhat positive, indifferent, somewhat negative, and completely negative. And again, Jim, if I had a nickel for every time, like I would, if I, if I could pick one of these answers and get a nickel for every time that button was clicked, I would be a rich man. The next question is, why do you feel this way? Select all that apply. It, I was inconvenienced. The extra step before coming to the park is a hassle. Mm-hmm. All right. Or I feel secure. I like knowing that I will get into the parks I want to visit. Mm-hmm. Special. I feel like I get exclusive access to a world-class destination. Upset. It feels like mm-hmm. Disney's making the parks less accessible. Concerned. Mm-hmm. It makes me think the parks will be busy or crowded. Mm-hmm. Organized. I like having structure and plans. Mm-hmm. Annoyed. It feels unnecessary, like my ticket should already count as a reservation. That's a great way of phrasing that. Wow. And then the yes, last option yes, is, yes, get, yes, exactly. Okay. It's, it's, there's a whole Jerry Seinfeld thing about reservations here, right? Uh, <laughs> and then the last option is, I really don't have any feelings about this. Mm-hmm. All right. The, uh, the next question is, you may have already mentioned some of these, but do any of the following reasons describe why you dislike mm-hmm. Disney's park reservation system? Please select all that apply. I'm unable to park up until 2 p.m., 
I prefer to be more spontaneous during my trip. Once I make a reservation to visit a park, it's difficult to change. I'm able to visit fewer parks. I'm able to visit less often. The park is more crowded. The process of purchasing a ticket is more complicated. I prefer to be more flexible in my planning. Reservations open at different times for different groups of guests and none of these. And I've never seen this next question before, Jim, but good for Universal for asking it. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to your dislike of Disney's park reservation system, which of the following statements do you identify with the most? I'm more frustrated by the multi-step process of making a park reservation, or I'm more frustrated by the overall principle oh. of needing a park reservation, right? <laughs> wow. That's a great question. That is, that is. But but again, moving it to the abstract, I love that. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of thought that's going on no, into this survey. Absolutely. I really like it quite a bit. All right. Okay. Next question. Please select how the following changed, if at all, due to Disney launching the reservation system. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the five categories that you get to pick are, this thing was much better after the reservation system. It was better after. It was just generally better after the reservation system. There was no change. It was worse or it was much worse after the reservation system. Mm-hmm. My experience planning for my visit. Mm-hmm. And here the person who took the survey said it was much worse after the reservation mm-hmm. system. My experience inside the park was just worse after the reservation system. Mm-hmm. My perception of the Disney brand was worse during the reservation system. And the value for the cost of a ticket or pass was eh, no change. Yeah. The follow-up question is, is if you could change one aspect of the reservation system, what would it be? No surprises there. Uh, the person who answered this one said, uh, eliminate the no park hopping until 2 p.m. rule. <laughs> oh. I, uh, quick question. Is there any chance we can get this sent to Josh tomorrow or Bob Iger? I mean, I just, I, I, I feel like this needs to land on somebody's desk. Well, you know, and again, I know that, People from Universal Surveys listen to the show. And I know that people from Disney's Consumer mm-hmm. Insights Group listen to the show. So, yeah. you know, the purpose of, of reading these is, number one, they're interesting and they're newsworthy. But number two, it tells you that it allows you to know what other people know, what you know, right? Yeah. So now Universal, by asking these questions, knows what mm-hmm. Disney knows about their own internal surveys around the reservation system. And Disney knows that Universal knows what Disney knows. But this is one of these speak truth to power moments. The yeah, exactly. Right. Look, you know, I mean, because I, I think that what's brilliant about this survey is, is it, it so succinctly zeroes in on what the real issues are and, and what's happening to the perception of vacationing at Walt Disney World. Yeah, it's true. All right, there's a couple of other questions here to follow. Have you ever chosen to visit Universal over Disney because Universal doesn't have a reservation system? And our respondent clicked yes. Mm-hmm. If Universal Orlando were to institute a park reservation system with the same attributes as Disney, how would that change your opinion of Universal, if at all? Mm. And the options are, I would view Universal much more negatively. I would view Universal more negatively. I would not view Universal any differently. I'd view Universal more positively and Mm. then much more positively. And of course, our respondent said much more negatively, which I would assume every single person would click that button Mm. on this survey. And then there was a free-form text question about why you'd feel that way. And then there's, you know, to end the survey is basic demographic information. So, Jim, the mm-hmm. question that I had is, why is Universal so interested in the park reservation system? So, I, got, I have a couple of ideas, right? One is Universal is definitely getting some guests alienated by Disney. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's more revenue for yep. Universal. On the other hand, 
Disney's definitely getting labor savings from park mm-hmm. reservations, which is cost savings, right? And we know this because Disney's said that on earnings calls, right? Yep. So I think the question for Universal here is, of those two numbers, which one is bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Is Universal getting more revenue from people who are fed up with Disney than Disney's getting in labor savings? And the reason why that's important is because I think Wall Street will look at increased revenue and decreased costs differently, right? Mm-hmm. If it's one or the other. You're not wrong. I mean, so many companies, particularly in the tech sector, are you know just responding to pressure from uh, from Wall Street about yeah, and, and everyone's cutting six percent because that's the number everyone that's agreed exactly, on. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Not that we need to cut six percent, but Wall Street is basically telling us that we need to cut six percent. Six percent. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The uh, the other thing I think is driving the survey is this: like Universal Orlando knows that mm-hmm. when it opens, there's going to be mm-hmm. more people trying to get into Epic Universe than can fit in Epic Universe, right? So they're gonna have to, there's gonna have to be some way of limiting the number of people who get in, right? So let's just assume right at the top, mm-hmm. everyone staying at a Universal hotel gets in. And we've already seen other surveys that indicate that multi-day ticket holders will be the next set of people who get to go to Epic Universe. Mm-hmm. So that means that if there's any space left, how do you fairly allocate that space within Epic Universe to one-day guests, yeah. right? And would a reservation system alienate those people? So keep in mind, too, that you can't just walk from Epic Universe to another park if you get turned away because it's physically distinct from Mm, the other park. So I think that's why. One of the design conceits of this park is by just by its proximity to the Orange County Convention Center, this is a park that, you know, for example, will shut down a land at three or four o'clock in the afternoon because they've, right. we, they've had a buyout for a corporate event that's going to come which reduces that section of the park. So right. uh, that's further going to limit this park from an attendance point of view. And right. they know that going into this before even this thing goes live in 2025. Yeah. So given the number of people who are going to want to go in, yeah. How do you allocate that that space, which is going to be much less fairly? Yeah. And so right. they're looking at this saying, you know, is it reservation system? Is it lottery? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it first come, first serve? In which case, you know, you're going to have people lining up for seven hours. Mm-hmm. You know, is it, they're, yeah, I think you know, this is one of those things where they're looking at options and trying to see how to do it. No, 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 absolutely. And it, it's certainly very smart to be doing this Oh yeah, yeah. Can I, can in I 2023 it, yeah. as opposed to open the park in 2025 <laughs> and then figure it out. And then figure it out. Exactly, exactly. All right, Jim, we've got time for one quick listener question. This one is from Blake mm-hmm. who says uh, this. And speaking of, you know, company trips to Orlando, mm-hmm. uh, my company is holding their next semi-annual meeting at the Gaylord Palms Orlando. It's got mm-hmm. me thinking about transportation to the parks and then transportation within the parks. Mm-hmm. Which Disney resort do you think has the best overall transportation options to all the parks? Ooh. So in other words, it wouldn't be a resort that's super convenient to just one park and then it has to mm-hmm. get to the others. It'd be the one resort that has pretty okay options to everything, nothing super great and nothing super terrible. Mm-hmm. So right off the top, um, we're going to eliminate some resorts. Old Key West, <laughs> Saratoga Springs, and the Treehouses, Fort Wilderness Campgrounds, and probably Wilderness Lodge, Boulder Ridge, Copper Creek. Because, I mean, Treehouses are like the most remote thing you get. Saratoga Springs, Old mm-hmm. Key West, notoriously bad for bus service. And Old mm-hmm. King Lodge and Kidani aren't connected mm-hmm. to anything. So they would lose out, and they're at the they're at an extreme end of the property. So they would lose out to anything that's closer, right? Okay. I would also say we should eliminate all stars from consideration because pop and art of animation have the Skyliner. Mm-hmm. So everything else being equal, they would be better. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. I also think we should eliminate the Grand Floridian and I will tell you why in a minute. 
Hmm. Okay. Also, uh, Coronado and Grand Destino would be out. Also, mm-hmm. Port Orleans, French Quarter, and Riverside for reasons that will become apparent in a second. All right. So, a okay. couple of um, couple of obvious options: the Skyliner Resorts, right? The Riviera, Caribbean Beach, Pop Century, Art of Animation, because you can get to two parks mm-hmm. from them with the Skyliner, and then you can bus everywhere else. And in places like you know Caribbean Beach is relatively in the Riviera, relatively centrally located, mm-hmm. right? Pop Century Art of Animation, they're sort of on the edge of property, but it's a straight shot down World Drive to get to Magic Kingdom, and then Epcot, Animal Kingdom, and the studios are all closer. Eh, you could you could kind of see that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think, Jim, it's one of these four. Okay. I think one of our options would be the contemporary, because you can mm-hmm. walk to the Magic Kingdom, monorail to Epcot mm-hmm. in just one stop at the TTC, and then you can bus everywhere else. Now, sure, it's at the far end of property, but eh. Okay, the, you've already got two parks nailed down, and the distance between Epcot and the studios is not that great. So Animal Kingdom is a hike. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. The Poly would also mm-hmm. be an option because you can still walk to the Magic Kingdom and walk to the Epcot monorail without having a stop. Granted, mm-hmm. the walk to the monorail is a hike, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about the, um, the Grand Floridian, mm-hmm. you would have to make three stops to get to the Epcot monorail. Mm-hmm. True. Right? You'd, okay. You'd have the Magic Kingdom stop. You'd have the Contemporary stop. You'd have the TTC stop mm-hmm. to get to Epcot, and you'd still have to walk to the Magic Kingdom. So this three stops from the Grand Floridian beat a longer walk mm-hmm. to the Magic Kingdom at the Poly, but a very short walk to get to Epcot. I don't think it does, and I think the Contemporary wins either way because it's uh, same distance as the Grand Floridian to the Magic Kingdom, but less monorail hassle to get to Epcot. So. The okay. contemporary beats the Grand Floridian. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, the Epcot resorts, mm-hmm. because you can walk to the studios and to Epcot, and since you're sort of in the middle of the part of the Walt Disney World property, it's mm-hmm. sort of not terrible either any, anywhere else. And here, I'm specifically thinking Beach Club or Boardwalk, because mm-hmm. then it's the shortest walk to a park or Skyliner. I like how you've winnowed the field. Downside is these are among the priciest hotels on property. <laughs> and, and Cho- choices have consequences, Jim. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. I mean, so if it was me, right, mm-hmm. everything else being equal, mm-hmm. I would say it's either the beach club or the boardwalk. Because if you're looking about you're looking at every other option, all of those things, the contemporary, the poly, the beach club, the boardwalk, all have great access to two parks or good access to two parks. But the beach club and the boardwalk have shorter drives to Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom than the contemporary poly. Because to go to the Animal Kingdom, you're hiking it all the way across property. So the Epcot resorts are more centrally located. So yeah, I, you know, if it was me, beach club, boardwalk. There we go. No, love that decision pretty. <laughs> I feel bad for Blake's wallet, but I, on the other hand, I think this is a, a wonderful suggestion. So, yeah, this is a great question, though, Blake. I mean, I spent I spent a good forty five minutes on this, you know, going going through it, trying to consider the options. Yeah, great, great, great question. I would love to see the whiteboard at your house. <laughs> exactly. There was a lot. Of, there was a lot of Google mapping going on. There we go. If, uh, there we go. if anyone has uh, any other ideas, though, let me know. Okay. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim talks about how Disney's tried to use Walt's likeness in the parks. All right, Jim, when you uh, proposed this story, I had two thoughts. One was, Walt's likeness, how controversial can that be? And then I typed it into 
Google News Jim? And I was like, uh, okay. All right. I actually thought, honest to God, I actually thought this might be two parts. <laughs> Okay, I guess we need to explain what Mr. Test is, is referencing here. The, the footage. Detroit it was the hologram. A, yeah, the hologram <sighs> that, that's going to be featured as part of the Disney 100, the exhibition, uh, traveling exhibit, which opens at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, Friday, February 18th. Yeah, so the yeah it, uh, it'll, uh, it'll open a couple days before the show goes live. Yeah, go. Okay, so as Len is referring to it, there was a reaction. There was a handful of Disney fans who who liked this virtual wall. The rest, the reactions went from fairly polite, like, that's concerning, to that's disturbing, <laughs> to kill it with fire. <laughs> Problem with this virtual wall is it's not modeled on the young Walt Disney from the newsreels of the 1930s. Nor mm. is it the kindly old Uncle Walt that most of us know from television of the mid-1960s. They, what they decided to do was split the difference. And they went with Walt circa 1954, a guy in his mid-50s. And all of the reference footage for this hologram was pulled from Walt's intros from the original Disney television show, the, the Walt oh, Disney's okay. Disneyland. And then this is the show that aired on ABC from October of 54 to August of 61, uh, changed its name in the last two seasons to, to Disney Presents. But these shows used to air on Walt Disney, on, on the Disney Channel, but that was a decade or more ago. So sure. a lot of people haven't seen this version of Walt Disney in a long time. More to the point, they never saw this version of Walt Disney in color. It was always in black and white. So people are, are talking about Walt never gestured like that or Walt never looked like that. This is, no, if you look at these shows, he actually did. But again, the whole issue here is that people are just, that is not the Walt Disney I know. Replicating Walt, whether it's for the parks or the films, has always been controversial, and especially back in the days when Walt's widow or his his two daughters were alive. And Walt's likeness and its use first became an issue back in December of 52. This is when Walt launched Walt Disney Inc. This is a company that grew out of Walt Disney's miniature railroad company, a firm that Walt founded in 1950 and literally operated out of his backyard. It was, he sold customized tools that were used for the operation of, of miniature steam trains. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's an awesome side business. So what yeah. was the purpose of Walt Disney Incorporated? Roy initially is not very enthusiastic about the Disneyland idea. So okay. Walt has to find money, you know, is paying out of his own pocket for mm -hmm. the initial development of Disneyland. So he's looking to set up additional revenue streams. Like, for example, under the Walt Disney Inc. branch of the company, he signed for the television rights to Zorro. Prior to that, there had been some Zorro films made, but the character had never been adapted for television. And the, Walt thought, you know, I'm going to probably have to go to the television networks and look for money for this thing. So if I have an idea for a series under my arm, and if they don't necessarily go for this anthology show I want to do, I do have Zorro. I could dangle that in front of them. And he's doing this personally, not as, not as a representative of the company. He still hasn't gotten his brother Roy completely on board with this thing. Walt paid out of his own pocket for the initial development of Disneyland. The language of the initial deal, he owned personally the Mark Twain Riverboat. 
the Disneyland and Santa Fe Railroad, and eventually uh, the Alweg monorail and also the very short-lived Viewliner. And this is actually back in the day when you went around the park, you had to hand in a ticket, an A, B, C, D, or E ticket. And the beauty of that system was that each of these attractions could send, then say, okay, I took in this many tickets today, and this ticket is valued at 40 cents. So this is the revenue that was attributed, or this attraction produced each day. Oh, and that money went to Walt? That went to Walt and his family. And, and this is what this largely was about. He had two daughters, and you know, Sharon and Diane, and likewise his wife, and was looking down the pike at the, the time when Walt Disney, the man, you know, would be gone, but Disney, the company, would survive, which, again, brings us to the, the other key issue here. This is when right. Walt turned around and went to the company and said, from this point forward, anytime you use my name or my likeness, I get a fee. Because, again, I want to create, a, so for lack of a better term, an annuity for Lillian, Diane, and Sharon. Oh, the idea being that, uh, you know, at, at some point the company is going to consider me as an employee, but not my family, and he needs to take care of his family. That's it, exactly. Okay. Now, Walt's brother, Roy O'Disney, understands what Walt is trying to do here, creating reliable revenue for his family. But Roy O'Disney, the chairman of the board of Walt Disney Productions, he objects to WDI, which in this case is not Walt Disney Imagineering, but Walt Disney Inc., He's like, the shareholders are not going to like this, Walt. You need to change this. And so first thing Walt does is changes the name of the company to Wed Enterprises in 1953. Yeah. And that's the company that got, then goes on to develop Disneyland. Disneyland, right out of the gate, eventually becomes a huge success, is making money hand over fist. But the notion that Walt is personally profiting from Wed Enterprises, the arm of the company that builds the attractions for the park really yeah. becomes a bone of contention between Walt and Roy. And and we've actually talked about this on the show, Len. When the 18-month-long period from Christmas of 1959, evidently they had a huge blow-up over the holidays that yeah, year. Yeah, they, did, they didn't talk, right? Till June of yeah. 61. And only then do they think, okay, we will sort this out. And it takes till February of 65 till finally... It's a negotiation. They go back and forth, and Walt agrees to sell Wender Enterprises to, to Walt Disney Productions, but he retains ownership of the Disneyland train, the monorail, as well as the, the rights to his name and his likeness, and that then is shifted over to a much smaller company, Retlaw Enterprises. Roy is not happy about this, but this was a negotiation. And, you know, it's saying, okay, we at least yeah. got imagine I mean, Yeah. The thing with the compromise is that nobody's happy, right? No, that's exactly. <laughs> okay. So that, that, that's what's happened here. So 18, 19 months later, Walt dies in December of 66. Well, how do we honor the memory of the co-founder of the company? And, and yeah. Roy decides, for example, that Disney World will now be known as Walt Disney World. But there now becomes a call to do something physical at Disneyland Park. Yeah, like a statue or something. But here's the thing. They start small. June of 1970, on Main Street, uh, the old Woolitzer organ shop uh, gets shut down and, and then reopens as Walt Disney, a legacy for the future. And it's a display of Walt's uh, awards and memorabilia, but it's also coupled with models of things that are going to be built in the future at the park. I mean, you could walk in there and it's like, oh, what's this Space Mountain thing? And they had to go to Lillian 
to get a lot of this material. And hmm. by now, Lillian has remarried. Oh, I didn't know she remarried, really? Oh, yes. At this point, she is Mrs. John Troyans. They married in September of 1969. Mr. Troyans is a real estate developer in Southern California, and they actually stay happily married till he passes away in 1981. But, well, you know, she's still very proud of her connection to Walt, and so she's, all right, I will allow you to do certain pieces. And if we jump ahead now to December of 71, Roy O. Disney dies. And during his lifetime, Roy insisted that the company honor the agreement that he and his brother had hammered out in 65. It's like, again, it's the rights to Walt's likeness and his name, plus all the monies for this, you know, Disneyland's riverboat, steamboat, monorail going straight to the Disney family. But April of 1973, inside of one week, we have the Walt Disney story opens at Disneyland Park. And then just seven days later, a East Coast version of this very same attraction. Where does it go? At Disneyland, it goes into the Main Street Opera House. And it replaces Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Whereas at Walt Disney World, it goes into the Exposition Center. It's to the right as you enter the park. Now oh, the theater. To the what? The magical Mickey meet and greet and all that. Yeah, yeah. Out in Southern California, Walt, especially in the early 1970s, was not quite as beloved as you might believe. When they opened the Walt Disney Story at Disneyland, they actually shut down Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And that had been installed there in uh, July of 65. Traction had only been open less than eight years at that point. But the Southern Californian conservatives weren't happy. You know, it was the notion of, wait a minute, you're pushing out Honest Abe to make room for Uncle Walt. And yeah. there were so many letters and so many phone calls that Disney got about this issue. The Walt Disney story at Disneyland actually shut down in February of 1975 and four months later reopened as the Walt Disney story featuring Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Oh. They had totally retooled the exhibit. So the lobby area was a celebration of Walt Disney. And the film element that had previously been shown in the 500-seat Main Street Opera House was now showed out in the lobby. Whereas, well, what they did is they restored the Lincoln show to the theater. History repeats itself in August of 1990. It, it's about this same time that word comes down that Disney is about to shut down Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln to put Jim Henson Presents Muppet Vision 3D in that oh, same space. Yeah, and I say, can see how people, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, you can go to Los Angeles Times right now and see all of the angry letters, you know, that, that, that people sent it, how dare Disney does this? And so they abandoned that idea. Did you ever see the sketch in Saturday Night Live where uh, – Keen Peel do uh, do security for the Muppet Show. No, go go look for it because Stadler and Waldorf. So Kermit's on stage, right? Mm -hmm. And Stadler yep. and Waldorf start mm -hmm. heckling Kermit, mm -hmm. and Keen Peel are like, "You are free to leave the theater <laughs> if you don't like what you're seeing." <laughs> and, and then and then you know Waldorf's like, "But I just want to." And then <laughs> they're like, "You are free to leave the theater." 
if you don't like what's going on. <laughs> and every time, every time the Stella and Walter say something, they're like, you are free to leave the theater. <laughs> oh, here, I'm going to go. Look, it's, it's great. Gonna yeah, go so that's why I think you are free to not go see this show if you don't like it. But go ahead. Wow. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. I will definitely seek that out. Okay. Yeah. To get back to the, the Walt Disney name and likeness story. Okay. It's now January of 1982, and Ron Miller, Walt's son-in-law, became president of the Walt Disney Company in 1980. And he knows that this is still the very same issue that Roy was upset about starting, uh, well, again, Christmas of 1959. You know, this is still hanging over the company. So he begins a negotiation between his wife, her sister Sharon, and Walt's widow, Lillian, in regard to, look, we need to do something about Red Law. This is going to turn into a controversy. We need to deal with this now. So finally, what they agree to do is that the company agrees to turn over the operation of the railroad, the monorail, the steamboat to the company. They also agree to sign over to Disney the rights to use Walt's name and likeness. They definitely get something out of it. It was a straight stock swap, but it was 818,461 shares of Disney stock, mm. which in 1982 dollars, that's $46.2 million dollars. Yeah, that's probably – if you told me that's probably worth $500 million in stock it, now, I would believe is, that. It, it is a considerable chunk. Now, mind you, as part of this deal that you know Roy got a verbal agreement from the company that anything involving Walt's name and likeness, they would run by the family beforehand. And September of 1984, Ron is forced out. As president and chief executive of Walt Disney Productions, the board of directors Oof. asked for his resignation. Yeah, I'm sure Lillian's not happy about that. Well, <laughs> it's so interesting you say that because the day after this happens, Lillian Disney Truins shows up at Disneyland unannounced. She is furious at the way her son-in-law has been treated by Walt Disney Productions management. So she announces that she is pulling... All of the items that she personally lent to the Disney archives that, that are now being displayed in the lobby of the Walt Disney Story features <laughs> great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And, and from a friend who was there in the lobby that day said, I mean, she, she it was like she was on fire. And it's like pointing to Coming things. Coming in and like, that's mine. That's mine. That's <laughs> it, exactly. And then she marched across the street, went upstairs into the Walt Disney family apartment and did the same thing. That's going to the car. That's going to the car. That's it's going, going to the car. <laughs> Steve, put this in the trunk. <laughs> and, and this starts an incredibly spiky period between oh, yeah. the Disney family and the Disney Corporation, which will definitely influence how Walt's likeness is used in the parks and on film. We'll get to that part of the story, which which deals with not only the partner statue that is now around the world and also on the Disney lot, but even what's going on with uh, Dreamers Point at Epcot. But again, we'll um, we'll get to that on next week's Disney Dish. All right. So I uh, I did a quick calculation. I went back and looked at uh, Disney stock history. So since mm -hmm. uh, 1982, the stock has split three times: mm -hmm. uh, a four for one split, another four for one split. 
mm-hmm. and then a three for one split, which means forty eight to you know to one. So the stock uh, at current today's current price is the uh, eight hundred and eighteen thousand shares of stock would be worth four point two three billion dollars right now. Oh my god! <laughs> well, the they made us doing right. Well. They're okay. doing fine for themselves. Okay. So Jim, so right now today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is there an official in writing agreement between the Disney family and the Disney company about how to use Walt's likeness? Because if there's not, I understand where the drama is coming from. There was an understanding, but it's not on paper, which is why, for example, oh, you yeah, saw yeah, yeah. Diane had the Walt Disney family museum built at the Presidio because the belief right. was – this is during a time when Disney went from Walt Disney Productions to Walt Disney Company to think about it. It was Walt Disney Pictures, and then suddenly it was just Disney. Yeah. The Walt sort of went out of the equation, and Diane was not happy about that. But but again, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that story next week. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and at Jimmy Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, it's the Jim Hill Hour because I'll be on a cruise somewhere in the Atlantic. Not the Bermuda Triangle, though. Don't uh, don't get worried. And uh, Jim will finish up this story on Walt's likeness. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be talking about the pros and cons of horizontal and vertical axis turbines and then doing the opening set for CJ Solar at the 2023 Comstock Windmill Festival on Saturday, June 10th at the Second Wind Ranch, that's just off State Road 183, in beautiful Comstock, Nebraska. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.